and amen. Well, let's come together this morning as we continue our worship, and we'll read to God's praise um, the Word of God from Philippians chapter 2. Let's pick up the reading. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true or hold fast to what we have attained. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, as a pediatrician, Working in the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children, which is where I worked back in Northern Ireland, I spent some time in the Cooper Street Clinic, which is on the Falls Road of Belfast, which is quite a deprived area. And there was a developmental clinic there that I worked in with my colleagues, and we saw many children coming into that clinic who were failing to thrive. Now, failure to thrive is a diagnosis in pediatrics. It it means the child is not passing or meeting its developmental, intellectual, psychological, physical milestones. And there are many causes for this, of course, um, poor nutrition in a deprived area of town, or malabsorption, some intestinal disease that's inhibiting the child's capacity to absorb nutrients from their food, or really a whole list of chronic diseases can cause a child to fail to thrive. Whatever the cause, though, when a child isn't meeting its milestones, it's always a cause of concern for the parents, and it's always a cause of concern also for uh, the pediatrician. Well, this morning in our sermon, I want you to consider the, the, the struggle to thrive, failing to thrive, as a problem also for the, for the Christian soul. When Christians aren't growing, when Christians aren't thriving, when Christians aren't developing, that should always be a cause 
for concern. I wonder this morning, are you growing in your relationship with God? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus? Are you a stronger Christian this year than you were last year? Or are you slipping back? And if you are slipping back, how long has that slip, that slide been lasting? When did it begin? And do you have any idea why you are failing to thrive in your soul? Those are important questions. In our text this morning, Paul describes his own spiritual growth as a Christian, and it's, it's sustained and it's continual. As a Christian, we never outgrow our need to grow. Children should stop growing at some point, upward and even outward as well. Um, they should stop growing. They should reach their, their average size, or their, their final adult size, sorry. Well, Christians shouldn't. We never outgrow our need to grow, even the Apostle Paul. And that's the first great lesson we see in this passage today. He says, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now, Paul here, I don't think Paul is speaking so much about Easter Sunday as if he's pressing on insecure as to whether or not he's going to make it all the way through to Resurrection Sunday. That's not the issue. We'll see that later in the sermon. Paul is talking here about feeling the power of that resurrection in his soul now, and it having uh, its full effect now in this life. Paul wants to be as mature as he possibly can be. And it's amazing that Paul says, I'm not there yet. You know, Wesley believed in Christian perfectionism, that you could get to a place where you were essentially perfect, not totally perfect, he didn't go that far, but that you came to a place where you no longer uh, were guilty of conscious sin in your life. And it's uh, been a, 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 a thought in the, in, the, in the holiness movement and in the, uh, the Keswick movement, that kind of idea of getting to a state of perfection is possible in this world. And Spurgeon met somebody once after worship one, one Sunday evening who had the same conviction that he is now perfect, he'd stopped sinning. And so there was a large crowd, and Spurgeon excused himself and went off into the bowels of the church. And with a twinkle in his eye, Spurgeon got a bucket of cold water and came back and poured it over the man from behind. And the man began to curse and swear and shout, and Spurgeon goes, well, <laughs> if that's your perfection, he says, you can keep it. Good old Spurgeon. Um, but Paul, this spiritual giant, is still growing. In fact, what is a spiritual giant? I've said this before, but a spiritual giant is simply an ordinary Christian who never stops growing. Are you growing as a Christian still? And that kind of begs the question, doesn't it? How does such growth occur? And that's really going to be the, the point of our sermon this morning. How do we grow as Christians? How do we 
thrive in our walk with God. And there are three points, but I have to tell you now we're not going to get to all three points, partly not because I'm a prophet, because we didn't get there in the, in the 8.30s or the 9 o'clock service, so I can't, I can't keep on having our sermons out of, out of kilter this morning. So um, I'll not tell you how far we're going to get, but the three points for this week and next week are these. To grow as a Christian, to thrive as a Christian, right, you've got to do three things. First of all, Christians are healthy and they grow well when they build on the right foundation. You've got to build down to the right foundation. And that foundation is Christ and His work on the cross, what He's done for us. We also grow well as Christians when we um, forget what lies behind. We don't run looking over our shoulder at either past successes or past failures. We, we, We keep looking forward. And thirdly, we grow well as Christians when we look forward with the right focus on eternity and the upward call of God, to the right foundation on Christ, the right forgetfulness, you might say, refusing to remember and determining to forget what lies behind, and the right focus looking forward to glory and the upward call of God. Well, first of all this morning, we we grow well as Christians when we grow on the right foundation, the person and the work of Jesus. And I never get tired of saying that because you never get tired of forgetting it. And neither do I, actually. We, we tend to forget this, and we think it's striving in our own strength by our own efforts, by our own discipline. And our strength, our efforts, our discipline are involved, Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that's not the foundation of the work. The foundation is not what you do. The foundation must always be what Christ has done. And if you lose that focus and you lose that foundation, you, you will become a miserable, exhausted, overwhelmed, frayed, grumpy Christian. And you do want to be that. So, the foundation, and we talked about this last week, but we just snuck it in at the end of the sermon. And uh, so, we're going to spend more time thinking about that this morning. The foundation is Christ and His work on the cross. And in particular, as we experience the, the life of Easter Sunday, the power of Christ's resurrection, the life of Easter Sunday, and the death of Good Friday, that Christ's death deals a death blow to our sins. Now, that's deep theology, but if you, if you aren't willing to think deeply on that subject, you'll never understand Romans 6. You'll never understand his argument in Galatians 5, Colossians 3, that Kai was getting to in his, in his, in his uh, wonderful assurance of pardon, and Philippians 3. The stacks of the New Testament will be lost to you if you aren't willing to go deep and explore what it means to be united to Christ in His death, burial, and in His resurrection, right? So, Paul says, I want to feel as I'm building on this foundation of Christ, I want to experience the life of Easter Sunday and the death of Good Friday in my soul. That's where I get the energy to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, and to grow, to thrive as a Christian. Right? So, everything in life needs an energy source. 
everything. And we get energy from the food that we eat. We get energy as we, as we burn fuels, fossil fuels or um, whatever. We burn fuels, wood, we burn, get energy. We get energy as we take water from um, a dam and all that potential energy, and we release it in a controlled fashion down through a, um, pipes into a turbine. And as that water falls through the force of gravity, all of that potential energy is released as it spins through a turbine, and the turbine spins, and you electrical engineers can figure out, tell us how all that works, but magnets spin, and they form electromagnetic fields, and you get energy from that, right? Or nuclear fission reactions, or fusion reactions, if we ever figure that out, we can get energy from that. We can get energy from the sun, right? And we need energy to live. The sun is the life force in a, in a physical sense of the life uh, in our cosmos. And Paul says the Christian needs energy to live the Christian life, and that energy does not come from within us. It comes from without of us. It comes from Christ and what Christ did upon the cross, His life on Easter Sunday and His death on Good Friday. Now, to understand this, you need to understand how sin works in God's universe, right? So, Romans 6.23, many of you could probably quote it from memory, but the wages of sin is death, and the, and the gift of God is eternal life. A lot of little different, different versions there, but you got the gist of it, right? The free gift of God, or the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That's to say, when you sin, you earn death, and sin always pays its wages in full. You are in death in your soul, you die spiritually, and you earn death in your body, you die physically. And as we've said before, our bodies are simply catching up with our souls. The reason our bodies are dying is because by nature our souls are dead. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you've been born again, you are now a living soul in a dying body. You've experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. More about that in a second. But by nature, we're all dead souls in dying bodies. And our bodies are just catching up with our soul, right? Now, on the cross, Jesus fixes this problem. So, think, follow me now. On the cross, Jesus fixes this problem by taking us into union with Himself, like those two drops of water coalescing on your windscreen or windshield, right? And they become one. And when Christ became one with us, everything about us became one with Him, principally our sins. And so, because our sins now belong to Jesus at a legal level, at a covenantal level, Jesus on the cross deserved to die. God had the legal right to demand His death. If that were not true, Christ would not have died. This world would be a vast hell of uncertainty if the wrath of God touched down anywhere where it was not deserved. And you deserve death, and because of Christ's union with 
you. He deserved your death upon the cross. With our sins as his very own, God was legally justified in putting his own son to death. And so, as Jesus died upon the cross, right, by virtue of who He is as God's infinite and eternal Son, He was able to absorb God's infinite and eternal wrath and make an end of it. Now, He goes in the grave for three days to prove that He was dead. There was no legal necessity for Christ to be buried, but He had to be in union with us in our graves. But the grave is the debtor's prison, right, where those who owe God death go. Now, Christ had finished the debt, but He goes in the grave to be in solidarity with us in our graves. But He's raised on the third day because God has no legal right to hold Him in death. He has paid the debt He owes. The wages of sin, which is death, has been paid, and He is allowed, just like a prisoner who's finished his sentence is allowed out of prison, Christ comes out of the grave, not just because He's God's Son, but because He's paid the debt He owed because of us, which is our death. And death no longer has the power, it no longer has the legal right to hold on to Him because the debt has been obliterated. Now, follow me here. Jesus didn't just die in union with us. He was raised in union with us as well, right? Um, The needle and the thread illustration. Everywhere the needle goes, the thread goes also, right? And so, Christ is the needle, we are the thread, and He he goes down on the cross into hell on the cross. Then after the cross, He goes into the grave, and then He comes up out of the grave, but He comes up out of the grave attached to us, and He pulls us where we are. And that's how the gospel works at the deepest possible level. And if you don't understand that, you'll not be able to live the Christian life at the deepest possible level. Now, some Christians poo-poo, you know, um, theology. And there's a story once of this physicist who poo-pooed, um, uh, actually an astrophysicist, and he poo-pooed these, these Christian theologians. He said, you know, all this deep theology. He said, my Christianity is much simpler than that. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And uh, the theologian said, you know, that's true. And I'm, I'm the same with, with astrophysicists. All the astrophysics I need to know is twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> right? But it doesn't mean the rest of it isn't worth knowing, right? Christ is raised in union with us. Now, let me change the illustration from the needle and the thread. Imagine as Christ dies and is buried and is raised again, invisible spiritual wires extend through time and through space. Invisible spiritual jump leads extend through time and through space, and they attach to God's people as they are regenerated. And the energy that actually regenerates them is the resurrection of Christ. 
Remember 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has caused us to be born again. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's almost as if the, the hydrolytic, uh, the, all that water lifted up in the dam and then is allowed to be released, comes down through the turbine. All of that energy of Christ lifted up in heaven, His resurrection, that potential energy is unleashed every time one of God's children is born again. That's the whole argument, you remember, of Ephesians 2. Turn there a second with me. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you walked following the course of this world. You were like dead fish being swept down one of those polluted streams in Palestine, Ohio, right? Um, Just being swept downstream with the rest of the world, a stream of trespasses and sins polluted with wickedness. And you're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's, think of the days, we are dead. We are dominated by the devil. We're driven by fleshly lusts and passions. We are deserving of damnation. That's mankind going along with the rest of the world. And then verse 4, but God. Wasn't us. Wasn't we thought, I've got a good idea. I'm going to believe in Jesus. That idea may have come to you, but it wasn't the first thing that came to you. The first thing that came to you was God. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. What did God do? He made us alive together with Christ. He took those invisible spiritual wires and connected them to our soul and brought life from Christ resurrected into Christ, into our souls resurrected even now, and raised us up with Him now, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus now. The needle and the thread. That's the gospel. And it comes to us in our new birth. And if you're not yet born again in this room, you must be born again. The covenant does not remove the need for our children to be born again. They aren't born again by nature. They're not born again by birth. They're not born again by baptism. They're only born again. They aren't even born again by good parental training. You can train a child to sit. Sorry, you can can train a dog to sit, and children too some of the times. Um, People in the fellowship hall take note. But you you can train a child to, you can train a dog to sit. This morning, Baxter came to the front door, a rare moment of obedience. It was cold, and he wanted in, and I'm training Baxter in threshold obedience, and I went like this, and the dog sat, sat. And then I went, come into the house. And he came in. I felt powerful. 
the dog sat. You can train a dog. You can train children. But you can't train them to be alive spiritually. Now, as we train them, we trust and hope. As we put the words of faith in their mouth, we pray that God will put the actual life of faith in their hearts. But our training is nothing unless God does that one something that must happen. New life must come. Right. And if you're not yet born again, you must be born again. People ask Whitfield, why do you always preach you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. You can't see, you can't enter the kingdom of God without it. Now, what I want you to see this morning especially is that we connect to that spiritual power not just in regeneration, which as God does that to us, God is the one who raises us up in Christ. It's God's work, not ours. But we also connect to that work of resurrection power and death by faith, as we look back and lay hold of Jesus Christ in our daily battle against sin. That's the whole logic of Galatians chapter 2, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. And the life that I now live by faith, what? I live by faith in the Son of God that faith lays hold of those spiritual jump leads and pulls them down, as it were, and draws resurrection power from Jesus Christ. Just like when you're washing your face in the morning, you put your, the hands of your body into the sink and pull water up to splash on your face. You, the hands of your soul go back through time and space and lay hold of Jesus, and they pull life from Him into our bodies. And that is the action the sine qua non of all true spiritual growth. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and thereby we make no provision for the flesh. And one of the problems some of you have is you spend your entire life trying to make no provision from the flesh, but you do that without Jesus. How is that working for you? Not very well. All of our spiritual growth begins by looking to Jesus and pulling life from Him into us, and the power of His death from Him into us. How does that work? Well, think, picture in your mind some powerful temptation to sin overtakes you. You're struggling against greed, lust, um, anger, frustration, resentment, to say words, speak in a way that's unkind, whatever it is, right? Some strong temptation some vice, or you're struggling to put on a virtue of love. Someone's hard to love, and you find it difficult, and it's hard, and, or joy in, in the midst of difficult situations. How do you find that? Not by looking within, but by looking to Christ, by building on the right foundation, right? And that's the whole argument of Romans 6, when sin comes in, and sin seems so strong, and you can't say no to it, what do you do? Look at Jesus. Turn back in Romans 6 a second, and let's look at that together. You look back to the cross. You see Jesus dying there for you, and in you, and you dying in Him, and your sin dying in Him. And the power of that death killing your sin, its capacity to hold you, to dominate you, to control you, 
You look back Easter morning and you feel the power of His resurrection coming into your heart, and you believe that life into yourself. So, let's look at um, Romans 6. Let's begin in verse 2, middle of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it, right? If, you've, if Christ's death really has killed your sin, how do you still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into His death? Notice now, Paul here is not speaking about the mode of baptism. More about that another time. No time in this sermon for that. He's speaking about the meaning of baptism. That baptism is union with Jesus Christ. We're baptized into His name, into His being. Now, he's not even speaking about the picture of baptism, but it's reality. Right? We're baptized into the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We're baptized into union with the Godhead. But he's, he's not speaking about the, the right. He's speaking about the reality. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into union with Christ Jesus were also baptized into what? His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You must do that. Let not sin. Why? Because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. Right? And in that moment, remember we used this last week, the illustration of, it's 1865, the Civil War is over, and there's an African-American former slave walking down through the streets of Vicksburg, and his old master sees him and calls out to him, come here and help me at the house immediately. And the old man is so used to following that voice, he begins to follow it. And then as he's walking across the road, he suddenly remembers, he looks in his pocket for his certificate of emancipation. And he, he believes what it says more than the voice of his old master. And by faith, in this certificate, he turns away from his old master and walks away from him. And the master goes, how dare you? Obey me. And the slave goes, no, you are no longer my master, and I am no longer your slave. Go away, little man. And he walks on. And likewise, Christian, 
And it's very hard to put into words, but it's the life and soul of growing as a Christian in that moment when you feel the titanic forces of your old man rise up, and he's deceiving you and dragging you, and you want to be this, and you're being pulled, and it feels like you want to go, and you're being pulled towards sin, and you feel you can't say no. You look back to your Savior, and by faith you lay hold of those invisible wires, and you say, Lord Jesus, I believe your death has been the death of this sin in my soul. It no longer has the power to hold me, and I believe your life enables me to put on the opposite virtue. And I believe it, and I hold on to it, and in the power of that faith, the life of Christ will flow into your soul, and you will have power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It's an act of faith believing in Jesus. And in that moment then, we have fellowship, Paul says in Philippians 3, with his sufferings. What's that mean? Well, it's, 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 think of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. And now, Christ did not have a sin nature. No, his, his nature was perfect. And so, he never desired to sin, right? Because the desire to sin is itself sin, Right? It is sinful to desire sin. Christ never looked with lust upon a a man or a woman or a child. Even say it's horrible, but he had no desire to sin, never once. But he did have a desire for God. And God was commanding him to lose God on the cross and to be cast out to fellowship with the Father and to be cast into hell. It would have been sin for Jesus to want that had God the Father not commanded that. So, when you think of Christ wrestling with temptation, He isn't wrestling with, you know, like some teenager wrestling over whether or not to view pornography. No, His, his temptations were much deeper than that. He had to wrestle down the desire to hold on to God Himself and not to become the sin of the world. But it was God the Father's will to do that and to become that. And so in those moments of the, in Gethsemane, Christ is struggling. He's suppressing His righteous human desire for none of sin and all of God. And yet His Father's will is to become sin and lose God. And He's wrestling. And He rises titanic and says, Not my will, but Thy will be done. It's the most amazing act of obedience the world ever saw. And we have a little, there's little echoes of that when we, in our grubby, grimy human will that's been complicated and corrupted by sin, and we're desiring sin and we're wrestling, and yet we're laying hold of God and His promises and His Son and His death and His Son and His life, and that power comes in and we have, we have, we know fellowship as Christ comes alongside us, puts His arm around us and says, you're my brother, I know how you feel, and you're not, you're not facing this temptation alone, brother. I'm with you in it, and I'll never abandon you through it. That's fellowship with Christ in sufferings. And that's where I want to finish our sermon today, to think about that. Notice Paul's battle to grow as he's building on the foundation. We'll come back next week and look, see his determination to forget what lay behind and to focus on the glory to come, but the foundation, right? Paul is fighting on that, con- that foundation. He's not fighting from a position of insecurity, as if, if I win this battle, I can call Christ my own. 
No, he is fighting from a position of security. He's not fighting to it. He's fighting from it. You see that when he says this? Not that I am already, have already, already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Not in the hope that Christ will make me His own if I pass this test and prove myself worthy. No, I'm fighting, I'm striving, I'm growing, forgetting what lies behind, my successes, my failures, because Christ has made me His own. And there's all the difference in the world, Christian, when it comes to fighting from security and fighting towards security. Illustration. We boy, or a teenager for that matter, is playing in an important match, maybe a, a soccer game or a basketball game. He's got, a three, he's got a, a, a three, three throws to win the match, or he's got a penalty kick to win the match. Now, imagine his father's the coach, and his father walks up to the wee boy. And there's two fathers here, right? There's the, there's the father who walks up to the son and says, son, this is an important moment, right? But know this, son, I love you and you're my son. And nothing that happens on this pitch today will change the fact that I am yours and you are mine. If you score the goal, I'll not love you any less or any more. And if you miss the goal, I'll not love you any less. You'll always be my son. Now go forth and do your best. The wee lad runs onto the pitch. It's an important moment, but he knows my father loves me and I'm shooting from security. Now, picture in your other mind, another lad, father walks over and son, this is really important. You miss this goal, you're going to make me look really bad. You're going to let the team down big time. They're going to lose. They need you to score that goal. And there's a college coach here from, I don't know, Clemson or somewhere, and they're watching you play. If you miss this goal, you haven't a chance of getting a scholarship. Now, go forth. Which boy would you rather be? The wee boy walks out. His whole life hangs on whether he scores the goal or not. The boy hasn't a chance of scoring. Keeper could lie down on the ground. He's going to put the ball over the net. You can't score. You can't fight like that if it all depends upon you and what you might do, messing it up. Or even scoring and feeling, oh, I might demand something. No. Jesus is here and he says, listen, you, I, you are mine. I love you. I've always loved you. I've bought you. I have made you my own now. I have made you my own forever. And there is nothing you can do to mess it up. If you score, I'll not love you anymore. And if you miss, I'll not love you any less. You are mine, son, my brother. Now go in the strength of who I am and what I've done. And there's nothing in heaven or hell can overtake you, overcome you. That's the foundation. And we build there or we'll go nowhere. And the problem with me and the problem with you is that we forget that. We think we're fighting towards security. Oh, if I can stop this awful habit, if I can start, if I can you know, just lose a few pounds or whatever, uh, then I, I'll, I'll be a little bit more worthy and, and, and I'll feel better about myself. And all the time you're going through life with this huge 
crushing weight upon you. As if somehow your performance can somehow build your identity. You can be successful enough as a man, then your wife can respect you and love you. Or as a woman, if you're successful enough as a, as a, as a mom, raising your children, if your children can play the violin concerto of Vivaldi when they're six years of age and, and, and kind of, you know, can do calculus when they're seven, and, and, and they're just, a, you thought, oh, then, then, then I'll, I'll finally feel I've, I've arrived. And all these forever out of reach goals are ahead of you upon which you're building your security and your identity. And when I'm like that, I'm only as good as my last sermon. It wasn't very good. And so, you're always… and there's no, there's no joy, no security. And that's why the question, where is your joy, son? It's such a powerful question, because it answers immediately, am I boy number two going out trying to earn the Father's favor? Or am I boy number one going out and knowing I have the Father's favor and the Father's love and a place in the Father's heart? And in a very real sense, it doesn't matter what I do. The one is a a path to joy, and the one is a path to sorrow. Where Where are you this morning? And Christ is calling us back again, back to the Father, back to the gospel, and back to the cross, and the power of His death, and the power of His life as the energy source behind all true, thriving Christian growth. We'll come back next week and finish the sermon as God helps us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for Jesus and the confidence that we are His, and He is ours. There's nothing we can do. Before we were saved, O Lord, we couldn't work our way out of Adam's sin. And now we are saved. We can't work our way out of Christ's righteousness. We can't make it better. It's perfect, and we can't make it worse, because it's Christ's, and it's now ours. And I pray, Father, for the grace and the comfort and the joy that comes when we know that and rest in that and live in the power of it. For my soul and every soul in this church, from pulpit to the back pew, in Christ's name, amen.